0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Shockman, and thank you for joining us. On the first Friday of every month, I'll be sitting down with newsmakers and journalists to dig a little deeper into the latest local stories. Coming up later in this hour, we'll break down the latest in the civil suit against the New Hanover County School District filed on behalf of the victims, and alleged victims, of former teacher Michael Earl Kelly, And we'll take a deep dive into affordable housing, what it means, and how other cities around North Carolina have tackled it. But first, a conversation about how that housing struggle intersects with the need for better jobs and structural racism. Joining me now is Wilmington native Kevin Spears, who was elected to his first term on city council in 2019. Kevin, thanks for being with us.
1: No problem. Glad to be here.
0: So coming up this month... Uh, Wilmington City Council members and New Hanover County Commissioners are meeting to talk about a range of issues, and I want to pick your brain on a bunch of these. We're talking about affordable housing. We're talking about wave transit. We're talking about jobs. Yeah. Um, big, important stuff. Uh, what do you see as like the, the
1: main crux of the affordable housing issue? I, I think it ties into jobs. Um, we see all this all of this new development. And we see the price ranges and we've seen the increase, you know, in a short period of time. It was the one hundreds and then it was the one fifties and, you know, now it's the threes and three fifties and four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollar homes. And you know, you talk you I'm often in conversations talking about the uh the uh, the, the mean, you know, the income mean for, for our area and it's supposed to be sixty thousand dollars and and I know for sure there there are some people who um, aren't anywhere near sixty thousand dollars. you know they would half of that would would be a huge improvement. and um so you're talking about people who are working the the tails off to to live in places that may be undesirable, you know, and have been deemed undesirable by people who don't understand their circumstance. And I probably say this in every interview. We see yachts on the Cape Fear River, and now we see these expensive condominiums um, downtown. Downtown looks totally different today than it did last year this time. Oh, yeah, and, and
0: totally different than, say, 2003.
1: That, yo yeah, oh, yeah. But I, I just, I mean, wow, so upscaled. Yeah. Downtown is so upscaled now.
0: So you, I mean, I, I hear this from a lot of people, um, and I think this is what you're getting at, is that, You know, you look around, you see the yachts, as you put it, yachts on the Cape Fear. Developers are building luxury apartments, obviously, because there are people who are going to rent those luxury apartments. So the question is, you know, what about the people who feel left behind by that?
1: Right. And there's, and I was going to get to that, the people who feel like, you know, they're being pushed. They're being, some people feel pushed out. Some people feel like they're being pushed into a corner. We're going to push you over here on the north side in this part of the north side. But everything that we can grab around you, we're going to grab it and we're going to build up. You know, what about the people who have lived here, who want to live here, but want to live here comfortably? What are we going to do? And clearly, we can't stop development. So what we have to do on the other end is try to come up with a way, set a standard, set a culture where people are um, employed at a better wage.
0: Yeah. So this is a different approach than a lot of um Other folks I've talked to about this in other cities. A lot of people they go the route of trying to either directly subsidize people, so they say, you know, your rent's twelve hundred, there's no way you can pay that. Maybe you can make eight hundred, we'll give you Dexter four hundred. Right. Or, you know, a city like Raleigh or Greensboro gets in on the ground floor and says, you know, we'll pay for like a third of the development. So the developer owes less to the bank. And then because they have less to pay back, they can charge less for rent. But you know, at a certain point, that gets wildly expensive. The number we've heard is, uh, I think it's $96,000 right. for one unit uh, to, for 20 years. So, wow.
1: yeah. Well, and, and there, is, um, there are some instances of that here. We have conversations with development, there are incentive, incentives to do certain things. Um, but if you're talking about a developer who, who has the money and is not really concerned, they'll just build you know and and there are some places you know we could expand Jerve and and some other sites so we could we could probably buy some some properties but then again you get tangled in the weeds with ownership you're still the ownership is still the typical patriarchal establishment yeah i, I, I like i like
0: that so we're not you know we're not getting people to home ownership we're not building equity Right. So what you're talking about is, okay, so to a certain extent, there are some things cities can do to try to help people make that difference. Yes. But there's a whole, I mean, the this is something that they've talked about in Asheville where they're doing well, they feel like, on renters, but they just hit a wall when it comes to home ownership. And part of that is you know, if you're looking at wages, you know, what people are making, this is what you're talking about, right? Right. So, you know, at a certain point, you can't Get over that basically wall between renting and owning, so you can't build equity for your family. You can't escape the sort of monthly trap where you're just, yeah, it's nice because people come and fix your water heater when it breaks, but at the end of the year you've paid you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars and you got nothing to show nothing. for. Yeah. So
1: and and then you're when you have to re- renew your lease, it's going to go up next year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so to the job point, right? So everyone's making enough money to afford the apartments we have right now, then they all become by default, affordable. Right. So two questions here. One, what kind of jobs would be good for this region? And two, how do we get them? One of those might be easier than the other one.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think Wilmington has a history of industry. Talking about GE, talking about corning. Those things have gone away. Um, Mechanisms are in place who, who really, that now, Really weed people out. You go to an interview, a person's of good character. You know, you want to give somebody an opportunity. Now everything's online and an algorithm and keywords that they're looking for in a resume. And a resume doesn't necessarily tell how good of a person you may be in a work situation. It just tells what type of credentials you have or you don't have. And so we need to get back to manufacturing. We need to get back to, you know, industry. Most citizens feel like Wilmington is being heavily geared towards being a tourist town. And, sure. and, and yeah. we're kicking, yelling, and screaming that we we don't want to be classified as a tourist town because, you know, it, it, and here's the major thing for me. The incentive to come here can't be the beach. It can't be. Right. You, you, just, you just can't sell the beach as, you know, the number one reason to come here. Even the, the beach is great. We love it uh, for the ones of us who go. But that can't be the incentive. You know, you got to want to bring some people here and you got to want them to come here with their standards, pay standards, benefit standards set high. Right. Yeah. And and willing to give citizens an opportunity.
0: So let me see if I'm, I'm getting this the way you're mapping it out. We're talking about the great finance jobs that are here in town. It's hard for... You know, whether you're a minority or a low income person or you're tattooed or you just don't have experience in that industry, it's hard to make that jump. Yes. And you can, I feel like there's a nostalgic view where people say there was a time when maybe you worked at a, you know, a mom and pop restaurant, but you ran the hell out of that restaurant. I mean, you really had all your bases covered. And someone says, you know what? Even though that person ran like a greasy spoon diner, I can see that person's got management potential. They're good at delegating, they're good at, you know all that stuff that would make a good manager, regardless of whether it's a diner or a yeah. Bank. You got it.
1: You got it. And and even you know, the owner saying, "Well, you know, you you run this op oppor- you run this business so well. I'm gonna get out of the business. Um, the first, my first option, um, I want to extend the offer to you, to to own this business. And I think those opportunities are going away. And you're right. Uh, whether you're low income, tatted, uh, dreadlocks, bald head, beard, clean shaven, the, the, the people who are at a disadvantage are looking at the transplants and saying, how'd you get here? And, and how'd you get here making this type of money? And, and I, you know, people who try, you know, it's not saying that, oh, people don't want to improve their situation. They do. But you people are getting doors slammed in their face.
0: Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman talking to Wilmington City Councilman Kevin Spears. So a question we get a lot, back in, I believe it was 2014, there was a report that the county paid for. The, uh the Garner Report. One of the things he talked about was that the economic development groups were balkanized. Right. And, you know, I hear from people, you know, quite a bit. Um That's still the case. So, like you said, Wilmington Business Development, Wilmington Downtown Incorporated, uh, the Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce, yeah. Maybe not working so much in a synergistic way, Um, you know, because the same complaints people have had about, you know, we need manufacturing. We need, you know, actual middle class jobs. Right. uh, That hasn't seemed to change in a decade. Is there anything that the city can do to sort of say, hey, everybody, we need to get on the same page?
1: I think so. I think we need to hold those companies, those organizations accountable. You know, I'm waving the flag for it. Um, it's going to be hard to have a sit down or be in a meeting and I'm there and you're talk, um, talking about all of these great things that are taking place. And I know some things to be different.
0: So that's, I mean, that's kind of what I see developing here is that there's an e- the fix for e- even transportation, right? So yeah. The fix for transportation, the fix for housing, the fix for a lot of issues, even the, the fix for crime, right? Yeah. Is good paying jobs.
1: And empathy. Yeah. And, and empathy because you have to put yourself in a situation. You know, I'll be honest, even as I prepared mentally to come up here, I was thinking, man, what, what is being going to throw at me? That's one of the biggest issues. People are intentionally excluding others. And it's paying, off. it's paying off well. It's paying off well. And it allows the people who are being excluded to say, yeah, there, there's a thing here. And then you feed in all of these other things. You, you you feed in 1898. You feed in the Wilmington 10. And you're like, yeah, it makes sense. There has been a negative precedent set. And it, the standard is still being held.
0: So in terms of, I mean, just let me just say it point blank. There's still some racists or... Some. Okay. <laughs> there's there's enough racists to make it, you know, systematically difficult for a person of color to get a good job regardless of their qualifications, or their qualifications don't land quite the same way that maybe... That's it. Uh, a, a white person or an Asian person it, it, might...
1: The, all of the above. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, that's what makes it systemic, you know, and, and what we've seen in 2016, <laughs> um, up until... Just last year, it moved from covert to overt, but the system is still in place. And I don't know if this is where you wanted to go with this. This is where we're going. So to say, I didn't know if this is where you wanted to go, but you know that's the thing. The the system is still in place. So the 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 mechanism that I talked about previously is still in place. Yeah. So it's not until you, I'll I'll use the word revamp. But I want to say you have to really break the system down
0: on the one hand, yeah, there are there are policy solutions to individual problems. we could tweak the wave routes, we could you know push developers a little bit more. But the thing you're talking about systemic racism right in wilmington um you know people love to say, yeah we it's time for a hard conversation about race, but I don't. <laughs> I'm not trying to be cynical. Are we any closer to that?
1: Well, it is not even about the conversation anymore. Um, you know, excuse my fruit. You can get the biggest to talk. Yeah, we'll talk, um, and then that's when you see deflection. I mean, we saw it for four years. Well, Donald Trump says I'm the best president black people ever had. I'm the best president poor people. Have, and some people bought into it. I, I often talk about the the tangibles, the low hanging fruit. You you want to get people involved? You want to see change? Pluck pluck the low hanging fruit. It's there, it's there. You know, uh, set an example. Set set the standard. So let's <laughs> yeah let's let's end
0: with that. So you know, action. Low hanging fruit. Yeah. a place to start. Where can where could the city of Wilmington start? What are some of the low hanging fruit that the city could could pluck?
1: I think by setting the standard, by by bringing jobs here that are going to pay better than some companies that are already here bringing companies here that are going to employ people who may not have desirable past you know how 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 long will we hold people in their wrongs if that makes sense so so to answer your question that's that's what wilmington can do wilmington can give people opportunities wilmington can try to attract businesses who are also willing to give people opportunities and not try to come in and pay someone minimum wage, try to employ people at a, at a better rate, you know, a livable wage, even set the standard higher, you know, because we, we are, we can see that there's money around us. But do we want to really close the gap? I think it's the bigger question. Some heavy duty stuff. Sorry, man. No. It's,
0: <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, I know it, it's we should be past the conversation part, but I, I do look forward to having more of this conversation. Yeah,
1: I, and I agree. I don't. I don't want to downplay the conversation, but you know, from from my perspective, I, I want some action. I, I want. I'll say let's have a conversation, and then let's have action immediately afterwards. Not have a conversation, and this is normally the trend: have a conversation, have another conversation. And didn't have another conversation. Right. And didn't didn't see nothing happen.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of those meetings. Um, yeah, I, I mean, if if
1: if, if 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 I'm lying, man, tell me I'm lying. But <laughs> no. I don't think so.
0: All right. Well, last thing uh, I wanted to bring this up on <laughs> on Facebook every Friday, you have <laughs> you have get it off your chest get Friday. Get it off your chest Friday. Before we go, is there anything you want to get off your chest? Oh. Uh, <laughs> or did you already get it off your chest?
1: Um. No. But yes and no. Um. I think the biggest thing that I want to get off my chest is just what I'm trying to do as a councilman, um, trying to be trying to be the best councilman I can be for everyone. But the boundaries. You know, the boundaries. I, I do. I have a family. I have a job. And, and so um, I'm a person. I, I like I like people. I like conversations. And then sometimes I, do, I don't like conversations, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's all about being human. And so, you know, um, I guess what I'm saying is I'm just me. Um, Take it or leave it. I'm just me.
0: Fair enough. Well, uh, let's leave it there. Councilman Kevin Spears, thank you so much for coming by.
1: Thanks for having me, man. I enjoyed it.
0: All right. Later in the show, we'll be taking a deep dive into the issue of affordable housing, including a look at people here in New Hanover County who are affected by it and what other cities in North Carolina are doing about it. But first, after a quick break, I'll be joined by WECT investigative journalist Ann McAdams to unpack the latest in the civil suit against New Hanover County schools. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom, I'm Ben Shockman. There are currently two high-profile civil lawsuits filed against the New Hanover County School District. They're filed on behalf of the victims, and alleged victims, of two teachers. Peter Michael Frank, who was arrested in early 2020 and is currently awaiting trial, and Michael Earl Kelly, who was arrested in early 2018 and, in the summer of 2019, pled guilty to dozens of charges of sexual abuse of students. At Kelly's hearing, the prosecuting attorney told the court that Kelly had admitted to investigators his misconduct and abuse had been looked into by the school district, but that law enforcement had never been notified. If true, that would be a staggering ethical and policy failure for administrators and possibly a crime in and of itself. Shortly after this revelation, the civil suit on behalf of Kelly's victims was filed. The case has since been quietly building, as plaintiff's attorneys have been collecting documents, interviewing witnesses, adding new alleged victims, and even taking a deposition with Kelly in prison. This month, the case is expected to heat up, as the school district decides whether to settle the case, which could cost millions, or go to trial, which could have a different type of cost, for victims and the district alike. We're joined now by investigative reporter Ann McAdams, who, along with her colleagues at WBCT, has covered this and related stories for over three years. And two reminders here. One, the Kelly case is based both on admitted criminal behavior and on allegations. So some aspects of the civil case have not been proven. And two, while we're avoiding graphic details, the following conversation may be upsetting for some listeners. With that, I'm joined now by investigative reporter Ann McAdams. And thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So I want to take people back to 2018, to the arrest of Michael Earl Kelly that sort of set the groundwork for all the civil case. So what do you remember about that?
2: So I remember us doing a story about him being arrested and almost immediately getting a phone call and saying, I knew about this. You know, they're saying we've never had any complaints about him, but we reported this 20 years ago. And when they say they reported this, it was a less severe incident. It was just inappropriate behavior in the classroom, showing porn to students, having inappropriate conversations and telling sexual jokes to students. So certainly not sexual assault 20 years ago, but stuff 20 years ago that raised red flags that they tried to bring attention to.
0: So we followed that court process for you know over a year, and then when we got to the sentencing hearing, because Michael Earl Kelly pled guilty, uh, Assistant District Attorney Connie Jordan sort of dropped a bombshell on the court. Um, what did that do to the coverage of the story?
2: It just gave us merit to the concerns that people knew about this and didn't do anything. I think her saying, we have reason to believe that the school system knew about this, she said that Michael Earl Kelly admitted that they had been looked into this and cleared. People couldn't believe it. They, they, they On one hand, they knew it the whole time, but the fact that this was validating to some people, I think, that for a long time knew something should have been done about this and knew that people knew, but at the same time, it was just... Um, so sad that she's saying people knew about this and didn't do anything.
0: yeah, so that's you know, it was for us, it was the the fundamental difference between a bad actor, a bad teacher who committed heinous acts and something way more systemic uh, and way more upsetting. And that's what we had been hearing, but that was like you're saying, that was the moment where we realized, okay, this wasn't just people espousing conspiracy theories about the school district. this was this was something that was actually going to be investigated by the State Bureau of Investigation now.
2: Yes. And Mike Cully himself saying they looked into this. You know, I mean, why would he say that if it wasn't true?
0: Yeah. At that point, yeah, he was going to prison. He had no reason to throw additional fuel on the fire for sure. So at that point, we had what had been an investigation and media coverage of, you know, one teacher and criminal acts committed by that teacher into way bigger concerns about the, the school district. And that's when the, the civil suit came in. So this is filed uh, on behalf of the uh, victims and some some victims that Michael Earl Kelly admitted to uh, assaulting. And some where it's just allegations. But it's not just about Michael Earl Kelly. Can you break down for us a little bit, what is the civil suit claiming and sort of why is that important?
2: Okay. The civil suit is saying that the administrators at New Hanover uh, county schools had a responsibility to protect the children in their care, and that they did not do basic things that uh, a reasonable person would have done—to act on concerns, to act on tips from parents, to act on tips from students—and um, and put an end to this. And instead, it basically enabled it to go on uh, for 20 years in the case of of Michael Earl Kelly. And in other cases, they're also saying it it essentially emboldened people to continue. Acting in this way because nothing's going to happen to you, and in fact, you'll be protected.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the plaintiffs in this case are, you know, they're they're John Does. We their identities have been concealed from the public, which is probably for the best. Um, But the defendants, it's not just the school district. This is where it gets a little bit complicated because you can, you know, you can sue you can sue the school, you can sue the school board, but this names other people too, including uh, Doctor Tim Markley and Doctor Rick Holiday. Um, What are they being accused of specifically?
2: I think they are just being accused of falling down on, you know, the buck should have stopped somewhere and the buck didn't stop with them, it would seem, if what everybody that is making these allegations says is true, you know, that... um, Rick Holliday, in his position, failed when he was a principal, you know, f- failed to take a teacher out of the classroom that was doing inappropriate things with children. And, you know, then later was a lot of people have said this was kind of the fox guarding the hen house, you know, that he was um, in, a, in an even bigger position to, to let this go on. And then with Tim Markley, um, you know, he came in. I don't know, 10 years after some of these initial allegations came up. But at some point, surely he was looped in on what was going on and he was made aware of these allegations and, and he also failed to put an end to it.
0: So we're talking about when Holiday was the principal of uh, Laney High School and Michael Earl Kelly was a the teacher there. And then later, obviously, he was deputy superintendent and would have been, you know, the the place where all of these complaints went. So, the, the next thing now is that you know, the case has been filed, and of course there's another civil suit, uh, very similar, about uh, Peter Michael Frank, separate issue, maybe another time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but now that the, the suit has been you know, filed, I, I believe uh, Joel Ryan and Jim Lee have asked the, the school to settle um, and pay out, but if it doesn't, what do you expect to see next?
2: I mean, I guess with the school system, on one hand, you know, if they do settle, I don't know if that's considered admitting any kind of guilt or it's just wanting it to go away. Um, But you would think some of the people that are in power now um, have shown true concern about the well-being of of the students who are affected here. But I I, I get that it's a tricky position because you're still trying to protect the school system. I, I honestly, though, don't see how admitting Bad things happen. I mean, the teacher has admitted that these happen. He's serving a prison sentence for it. I don't see how that is not in the best interest of the school to recognize this wrong thing that has happened and try to make it right.
0: Yeah, and, and it's a good point. I'm glad you bring that up. The uh, the school board sitting right now, there's no one on that board who's been uh, in office longer than two years. I mean, the the old board under which a lot of these crimes and alleged crimes happened are all gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Markley's gone. holiday has gone. Um, So, it's, you know, we hear, and I'm sure you hear the same thing, Uh, you know, we hear that the school board is protecting the school, but it's not clear who's left to protect.
2: Right. Right. Um, And, I mean, you know, I think early on, uh, it sounded like some of the reason that maybe this was swept under the rug was just the image of the school system. But at some point, like, at what point does the image of the school system take second place to, like, kids are being harmed here and there must be something to all these allegations. There's too many kids coming forward and too many parents coming forward. But I will say, I've just thought to myself, watching this over the last, what is it, four or five years now, how tough it would be to serve on the school board, whether you're one of the um, you know, people that were newer, but um, had been there for some of this, and then, and then some of the, uh, the folks that have just been there for two years, it's just, it's got to take a lot of nerve to even sign up. To, to, you're going to get people upset with you, no matter what you do. And I think it seems like a lot of those people are trying Trying to help,
0: absolutely. And I, I, think that's you know sometimes missed. Uh, I know even people, some people on the school board think that the media is out to get them, but at the other hand, we recognize you know when a new school board member is sworn in, one of the first things they do is they take the whole board into closed session and they basically they bring in an attorney and they explain here's the case. And we'll ought to be a fly on the wall for that situation, but we'll never really know what exactly that conversation is like. But it's got to be, um, it's got to be sobering. Mm,
2: yes. It also is interesting. I, 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 I'm trying to still get my own head around all the. You know, Wayne Bullard is out as the attorney for the school system. They have got Deborah Stagner. Correct. I know some people are concerned that she has a conflict of interest. There's just so many different tangential ways that, that you're trying to get your head around this. I, it'll, it'll be interesting.
0: Yeah. So I think that's the, the, big, the big picture right now for me is that um, in addition to the ongoing SBI investigation, which you know, we had heard it might be finished in April of last year. Obviously, COVID has slowed that down a little bit. Um, and all we all we've heard from them is just that it is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that there's the uh, Peter Michael Frank civil case. And there's this case, the Michael Earl Kelly civil case. Um, big picture, you know, where is the public with the school system? I mean, and how long do you think it will take before, you know, just that sense of mistrust and frustration goes away?
2: Well, I think with some of the top players, no longer working there, that was significant. The fact that some of them at least got payouts and retirement parties, that didn't help. Um, but they're at least not there anymore. So I do think as um, just symbolic as it might be or whatever, the fact that the Rick Holiday Stadium is still named Rick Holiday S- Stadium sticks in the craw of a lot of people. And that they go- I think it sounds like they're going to be addressing that soon, hopefully, if it doesn't get delayed again. Um, so I feel like um, even though they're symbolic, I think that the school board needs to address that those things matter. I just, you know, you try to, you're, you're, you're objective, you're a journalist, but I just um, think pretty much no matter who you are, you can't look at this and say that what happened to these kids wasn't awful and something needs to be done to make it right. So hopefully, um, just we'll see. But you, you would just think that the school board might even think that too and that uh, these victims deserve some kind of restitution
0: yeah, for sure, um, you know, and if they don't settle, I suppose the next thing would be uh, eventually this this thing would head to a trial, um, which I think would be tough on uh, tough on the victims, tough on the school system, and possibly tough on the public to watch.
2: yeah, I mean, we would certainly as journalists um, like to finally get answers to some of the things that we may only get at trial, but i don't really see other than the truth coming out and, and getting answers to some questions that we haven't gotten before, how that would benefit the victims or the school board to have basically all this aired. I, I don't see how, at least for the parties involved, it's in either of their best interests to pursue this in a trial.
0: I think I agree. Well, WECT investigative reporter Ann McAdams, thank you so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. Well, I know Anne and her colleagues will continue to cover the development of the Michael Earl Kelly civil case, along with the Peter Michael Frank case, and other news from the New Hanover County School System, and of course, WHQR will be covering those issues as well. Coming up after the break, we take a deep dive into a different kind of problem, the affordable housing crisis. We'll look at what affordable housing really means, who it's for, and what some cities are doing to address the striking lack of it. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. I'm Ben Shockman. The affordable housing crisis is not a new problem. Even the definition of affordable housing, spending less than 30% of your income on rent or a mortgage, isn't new. It dates back to the late 60s and the Fair Housing Act, or rather an amendment to that act, which capped public housing costs at 25% of a person's income. That got raised to 30% in 1981. Despite being around for a long time, affordable housing remains a murky issue for many people. Who, exactly, is it for? And what, if anything, can local governments do to tackle the issue? I'm joined now by WHQR's own Rachel Keith to help bring some clarity to this issue. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. So affordable housing is about two things, really, income and rent. Uh, and can you lay out what that looks like for us in here in New Hanover County?
3: According to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, in 2020, the area median income for a family of four is around $81,000 that somebody or a family would earn for a year. And AMI is a term we hear a lot by politicians and experts. You'll also hear a percentage of AMI used to describe a certain income bracket. So in New Hanover County, in our area, a very low income household, or 50% of AMI, would be around thirty-nine thousand dollars a year, an extremely low-income household, or thirty percent of AMI is around twenty-six thousand. And the latter, the thirty percent and the fifty percent of AMI, those two groups are eligible for different types of government services.
0: Right. So that's why we hear politicians talk about those those percentages. So, just, and again, just for reference, you know, what about a single person on their own? What's the AMI for someone like that?
3: So according to the American Community Survey in 2019, it's about $55,000 a year. And again, with, when you're looking at area median income, half make more in our community and half make less.
0: Gotcha. Uh, so that's income. What about rent?
3: When we look at the average two-bedroom in our area, it's about almost a grand a month. And the average renter can only afford about two-thirds of that.
0: Okay, and again, obviously that means you know some two-bedroom apartments are more expensive and, and some are less expensive. But in terms of our workforce, what percentage of people in Hanover County can't afford the place that they live? The, the, what percentage of them are cost-burdened?
3: So we're looking at a, at about 30% of people here in our community are cost burdened. That's about 30,000 households. And when we look at uh, renters versus homeowners, we're looking at renters being more cost burdened than someone who's owning their home.
0: So it's worth taking a moment here to point out that affordable housing isn't public housing. It's a mistake some people, a confusion some people uh, have Uh, Affordable housing is, you know, it's on a it's on a continuum with things like shelters for the homeless and and government subsidized housing. But it it is its own thing. Um, And that leads to some confusion about who the target demographic for affordable housing actually is. You know, who are we talking about when we talk about affordable housing? WHQR's Rachel Lewis Hilburn has the story of two people who fall into this category. And as she reports, they might be the kind of people you run into more than you would think.
4: Amanda White teaches chemistry at Hoggard High School.
5: I know as a single individual, I actually took a $2,000 pay cut to be here. $2,000 a year is a lot of money to not have.
4: White was working as a teacher in Greensboro, and she had to seriously consider the pay cut and the higher rents.
5: But I also had family support here. Um, I knew that like if I needed to spend a month or two saving, I could stay with my family. I wouldn't have actively chosen to just move here on my own as somebody who had taught under five years who was making under 40000
4: Lori Hayes works part time in the bakery at a local Food Lion. Well, technically part time. She says she usually works 40 hours a week just without full time employee benefits like health insurance and paid time off.
5: I am trying very hard to obtain a full time position that is available. I can do run both sides, the deli and the bakery. I'm the only one that decorates their
4: cakes. The term affordable housing gets thrown around enough to be confusing. But Sally Learned, executive director of the Brunswick Partnership for Housing, says the formula is simple.
5: If you are paying less than 30 percent of your income in housing, then it is deemed to be
4: affordable. But when a person's housing isn't affordable, they're at much higher risk for a single life event to push them into homelessness.
5: Um, a fire took our home. We lost everything March the 2nd last year to a fire. Actually, that is when Chris was admitted with pneumonia. We were at the hospital and they had just moved him up to his room and we got the he got the phone call that our house was on fire.
4: Chris, Lori Hayes' husband, has also battled liver cancer. It's why he had to stop working. And of course, no work, no income. Lori and her husband, teenage grandson, and adult daughter were living in a mobile home, using owner financing for the home and the land underneath it. Because the deal didn't go through a bank, there was no one to require homeowner's insurance.
5: Well, I was just in the process of getting it and had not. I was going to make the payment Friday. And it burnt down on Tuesday.
4: Sally Learned says the lack of affordable housing in the Cape Fear region, and specifically Brunswick County, is partly because the economy has thrived, thanks to affluent retirees drawn to the coast. Problem is, that's not the whole picture of who lives here.
5: You see a lot of retirees that have moved in, and you see high wealth housing, and you see high median incomes in those little pocket areas. But you go three miles inland into the county or you scratch under the surface in those coastal communities and there's a whole nother population.
4: Learned says things need to change. Going forward, coastal counties could serve not only at-risk populations by developing more affordable housing stock, they would also feed their own economic growth by luring larger companies.
5: Part of the attraction package, just like, the quality of public education is, the availability of stores, tax rate, incentives, everything else that goes into packages for businesses to come in. Part of that is housing. Do we have housing for workers? Is it affordable? Is it close to where they're going to be employed?
4: In the meantime, Lori Hayes plans to continue paying her mortgage on her lot.
5: I am going to rebuild. going to rebuild.
0: People like Amanda and Lori, they actually make too much money, as much as they might be struggling, for public-assisted housing, like Section 8 or government-run public housing. Um, And obviously, they don't make enough for the market-rate rentals in Wilmington, you know, for a luxury apartment. Uh, But that's not the only issue. You know, many developers are building these, you know, A-level nice apartments. But when they try to build more affordable ones, they get some pushback. Rachel, you came across this in your research. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, I talked to an affordable housing developer. Her name is Stephanie Norris, and you're going to hear her in my piece coming up. Um, She says sometimes when she brings up her projects to the Planning Commission, she starts to hear complaints from community members about building multifamily housing. And you know, these, again, are people like Amanda, people like their grocery workers that need housing in this area. But when we hear them come up, um, we there's a lot of pushback in the community and we, we call it NIMBYism, not in my backyard. They don't want multifamily housing. They want the single family home that will bring their, their housing value up.
0: Yeah, uh, I've certainly heard the same thing. And I've seen people speak at it at, you know, both Wilmington and New Hanover County, you know, planning boards. Um, But like, I want to dig into this, Uh, your piece is actually about the tax credit that Stephanie Norris uses to build these affordable developments. Uh, Let's take a listen to this, because this really gives a good explanation of how that federal tax credit program works.
3: In the Cape Fear region, there aren't many ways to get affordable units on the ground. But there is one federal program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, that has. The Reagan-era initiative has been around since 1987. Since then, Wilmington developers have used the tax credits for about 43 projects, putting into service over 1,900 affordable rental units. Essentially, developers sell the credits to investors and use the proceeds to limit their debt. Less debt means they can charge lower rents. Scott Farmer is the executive director of the North Carolina Housing Finance Agency, which administers the program in the state. Developers who want to build uh, apartments for households generally serving 60 to 80 percent of area median income or below can apply for this resource. It's a very limited resource. We receive about 150 to 170 applications a year, and we're able to fund about 40 projects a year. If the developer's application is approved, the units have to remain affordable for at least 15 years. And in most cases, they sign an agreement that extends the affordability for another 15. But Pamela Atwood, director of housing policy for the North Carolina Housing Coalition, says she's concerned that this program has become the primary source for producing affordable units.
2: So in order to provide housing, we we have to rely on this subsidy and instead of the government providing a subsidy directly, we rely on this private market. And so, you know, the concerns I have with the Logan Housing Tax Credit Program are in this
5: privatization.
3: Local scrutiny of the program erupted when the owners of the Driftwood apartment complex, a recipient of these tax credits, tried to sell the property. State and federal agencies still have to approve the sale. And even if they do, Driftwood's new owners would be required to keep the units affordable for another 15 years. But the displacement of residents, is a real concern. Katrina Redmond is the CEO of the Wilmington Housing Authority. They've been the developer of six of these tax credit projects in Wilmington, and unlike the owners of Driftwood, she says she plans to keep all of her properties.
5: And our waiting lists are very high. The need for housing that is affordable for the incomes that people have in relation to jobs and retirement in our area is extremely large.
3: Another local developer who has used the credits is Stephanie Norris. She and her family have been building multi-family affordable housing since the 1970s and this year she's applied for her project Estrella Landing and she says another local developer has applied too.
5: I often describe the tax credit program as being the biggest bang for the buck in your community or in our community in this case because for example you know Estrella Landing is 84 units. The residence at Canopy Point is another 72 units.
3: She says the credit application is extensive and once selected, there's a good deal of work involved with maintaining affordability requirements in managing the property.
2: It's a challenge. It sometimes makes you cry and cuss and fuss. And, but, you know, when you complete a property and you see a single mom who is in a difficult situation that needs to be on her own, on her own two feet, and you can offer her
5: a safe, affordable, nice place to live,
3: it's just so worth it. Despite some successes, Katrina Redmond says the low-income housing tax credit program can't be the only way to get affordable housing in Wilmington.
5: We're going to have to take an honest look at the tools in the toolbox and realize those tools are tired. Those tools do have limits. What are the things that we can do to break the barriers to the limits on those? And I wish I had those answers. Uh, it, it's, going to take, it's going to take the village to, to come up with the answers to those questions.
0: So the tax credit program is one of the major, if not the only way, that many cities tackle the affordable housing uh, crisis. But many cities that I've spoken to, Asheville, Greensboro, Raleigh, say the first step is really knowing what you need. You know, knowing what the need of the the, the cost burdened people in your workforce are, uh, and so New Hanover County will have some of that information coming soon. Rachel, tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yes. So New Hanover County and the city of Wilmington have commissioned the University of Greensboro to do this housing study, this comprehensive housing study that will tell us a clearer picture of what our housing stock looks like here, what housing needs to be built. And that should be coming to council and the commissioners in the next couple of months. So we'll really get some concrete answers. We're hoping that will lead to policy in the future.
0: Well, I look forward to your reporting on that. Rachel Keith, uh, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, Ben. All right. So before we leave, I want to take a look at what some of these other cities, including Greensboro, uh, have been doing on the affordable housing front. A lot of that has to do with how these cities are using housing bonds. Now, last month on the newsroom, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho said residents might see a housing bond on the ballot in 2022. But if one passed, what would that mean and how would it work? Asheville, Greensboro and Raleigh have collectively passed over $100 million in housing bonds, long-term loans approved by voters on a local ballot. While these bonds have been critiqued by both progressives and conservatives, they have overall been fairly popular. In 2016, Asheville and Greensboro passed bonds with 71 and 68% of the vote. And in 2020, Raleigh passed its fourth housing bond with a record 72% approval. But once cities have the money, then what? We, at the city of Asheville, kind of tried to define our role, which was first and foremost probably a funding source. And second, and just as important, probably the convener collaborator. Third, what real estate could we put into the mix as well? And then fourth is what can we do about our around our regulations and ordinances? That's Paul D'Angelo, Asheville's director of Community Development. Who says it takes a whole range of tools to deal with housing, from federal tax credits to nonprofits like Habitat for Humanity, and from repurposing public land to finding ways to cut costs for developers? It's an approach he's honed over the last decade, including eight years in Wilmington, advocating for affordable housing in both the public and private sector. And it's getting the private sector to come to the table that's perhaps the most important part of the housing puzzle. That's according to Stanley Wilson, who is D'Angelo's counterpart for the city of Greensboro.
5: Well, you know, the, the biggest and the only way really to tackle affordable housing is through public-private
0: partnerships. So how do cities get private developers, who could just as easily be building more profitable luxury apartments, to consider affordable housing projects? Wilson says Greensboro has to be flexible and not rely solely on the Reagan-era federal tax credit program that has, for decades, been the main funding source for affordable housing. It's
5: being open to do something different. And what I mean by that is, you know, their their approach to affordable housing is a little bit different in the fact that they don't want to apply for tax credit uh deals. They're not looking at it that way. So it's really trying to create a mechanism that will work, help meet some of their goals, but also to not make it as, as regulated.
0: D'Angelo says it's about money, something he took away from a recent affordable housing presentation. The developer stood up and said, If you want affordable housing, you need to write us a check and like, you know, laughter in the room. But like I took away from it later that night thinking about it was it's about that subsidy. It's about the money that needs to be uh, made available. Of course, using taxpayer money to incentivize developers is bound to have its critics, but it also works. To understand how it works, consider Asheville's cost for directly subsidizing a single unit from market rate to what's considered affordable for someone making 60% of the median income. So when you do that math of 400 bucks a month for 12 months for 20 years, it's like $96,000. So who's going to come up with that? Working with private developers, D'Angelo says Asheville has generated around 370 affordable units over the past year and a half at an average investment of $36,000 each. That's less than half of the cost of directly supporting a renter. D'Angelo says he's proud of those numbers, but they represent just 10% of Asheville's affordable housing needs. And the city, like many others, still struggles to address home ownership. But rather than being daunted, he hopes that Asheville's early successes encourage cities like Wilmington to go big. Take, for example, Raleigh's $80 million housing bond. Which the city successfully passed on top of a recurring one cent tax that generates over six million annually for affordable housing. Larry Jarvis, Raleigh's Housing and Neighborhoods Director, says the ambitious price tag will allow the city to map affordable housing development on top of its new transit plan.
5: The housing bond really was in response to the implementation of the Wake Transit Plan. The initial phases of the transit plan are kind of anchored by four bus rapid transit corridors. What council wanted to do was to make sure that we were out of head ahead of those transit improvements and that we particularly look at opportunities to acquire sites now for future affordable housing development so that we could ensure that we had affordable housing near those transit investments. The whole idea and the, the whole concept is equitable development around transit.
0: Wilmington is a long way from a project of that scale or scope, but as the conversation moves forward, at least some are bound to measure local success by what our fellow North Carolina cities have done so far. Later this month, Wilmington City Council members and New Hanover County Commissioners will be holding a joint meeting. Affordable housing will definitely be one of the key topics and HQR will be covering it. But for now, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Councilman Kevin Spears WECT investigative reporter Ann McAdams, and WHQR's Rachel Keith and senior reporter Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Thanks to Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig for engineering and Doc Jarden for production. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can also now find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and one of these days, Google Play. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, please email us at newsroom at I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.